You're always looking for the next beautiful moment where the story takes over and surprises you and makes it feel like it's bigger than you. Something's happening that's bigger than me. Those are my favorite moments and they're addictive and it will never go away. But they're also the moments that validate this is what I'm meant to do. Hello and welcome to episode four of Get the Idea podcast. On today's episode, I sit down with Amber C. Scott, author, writer, and mom to discuss the creative process around writing, the ups and downs that come with it, and the beautiful synchronicities that occur when you stick with it. Hope you enjoy. I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I remember telling my mom, at like age four or five, I wanted to be a writer when I grew up. And over the years, she would ask me, well, what are you going to write? And it was always some sort of fiction. And it wasn't until college that I had some direct creative writing that I did as part of my degree program. And then I always, I had a sense when I was younger that I just, I didn't have my story to tell yet. I thought I have to have some more life experiences before it'll arrive that I can write fiction. And then when my son was, I think about 10 months old, so I was 27, 28 years old, and I came across a book at the library called No Plot, No Problem mm-hmm. by Chris Beatty. And I read it and it's, he founded National Novel Writing Month, which is a, every November, everyone gets together and tries to hit 50,000 words for no other win except you said you did it. That's essentially, the book was about this concept of just just type, just write, just put yourself in the seat and do it and see if you can even accomplish it. And I thought, well, this is my opportunity. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I can see, I've always wanted to be a writer, but I've never sat down and really attempted it really well. And I thought, well, I'm going to do that. And so I did it and finished a really terrible book called The Graduate that I will never, ever be read by anybody. But I did it and I recognized that I, it's more than just this concept of I want to be an author. I understood what it meant to write every day and I liked it even when it was bad. And mm-hmm. so I, I started a new one and a new one. And then I joined Romance Writers of America because I was writing romance um, in various subgenres. And I started submitting for rejection. It was in the baby stages of electronic books and right as the first Kindle came out. So there was a lot of small publishers and I I started with a couple small press. And then a few years later, after those books launched and I learned what that experience was, I moved over to the indie side of things first as an experiment to kind of compare and contrast my small press experience to what if I did it by myself. And it was essentially the same, except I didn't have to worry about if somebody wanted, like I had a publisher change my cover without telling me and change the title without telling me. And the guy had a mullet and it was awful. (laughs) So so that's how I became a self-published or independent author. And is that still, um, still what you do now? You're still an indie author? I am an indie author, but life circumstances kind of derailed me being a full-time author. I got a divorce and as part of the divorce, it just wasn't a consistent enough month-to-month income that I felt safe Mm. as a single mom. So I went back to school and became an instructional designer. 
Right. I got my master's in education technology and I write secondarily. And just wondering, it's really interesting how you dove straight into the marketing and publishing side. So you just went in, you tried that challenge, you challenged yourself to write that first book, even though you're saying it wasn't great, but you did it and then you carried on. Did you ever have writer's block or come yes. up again? Yes. Absolutely. Right. I remember in my early years of struggling, getting lots of rejection letters, um, not hundreds, you know, you hear stories as a writer of, it was my 69th rejection letter. I threw the book against the wall. Like it wasn't, it wasn't that bad, but mm -hmm. I remember posting on the Romance Writers of America chapter discussion board, like, how do I keep going? <laughs> this mm -hmm. is, this is really, I don't know what I'm not doing well. I don't know why I'm not, you know, I just kind of shared some of my struggles on that, on that forum. And one of the authors, Laura Schnebley Campbell, she's great. She gave me a very lovely private email that said, if you can think of doing anything else that will make you as happy as writing, you should. Because it is not a easy calling. It is not a immediate ROI. You cannot mm -hmm. guarantee financial success. So it it was a really good reality check for me because I thought, well, I can't imagine not wanting to write or not writing. I've wanted to my whole life. It's a deep part of my identity. I love it. Even when it's a real struggle, I still love it. And um, it helped me understand that it's it's not about that immediate validation of somebody requesting your chapters or an early contract or anything like that. And it was a turning point for me too, because the way I engaged probably was a little more mature and a little more reasonable in my expectations. And it wasn't long after that, that I got my first contract, my first offer. Mm -hmm. But I, I would say every book has a struggle point to some degree or another that I can't see what happens next or life derails my progress, especially after my divorce. There was an eight-year period when I was working on just one book, mm -hmm. when before I could manage a couple books a year. So it was, it was discouraging, disheartening, and there's just something in me that it's an impetus that never goes away. It's so interesting, isn't it? The creative process, if you're doing something that's really heart-centered, it's like a part of you. It's so connected to your actual life. You can't separate the two. Yeah. No, I'm never not thinking about writing. I'm always thinking about the story that is currently tantalizing my brain, uh, the characters that I'm just like, what are we doing next? What is this? Why is this? Who's the bad guy? I'm, I always am thinking about writing. And when it's going well, I, it's to the point where I get a little resentful of regular life events that I have to <laughs> accomplish. Like, why does it have to be Easter? I could be writing that kind. Um, that's when it's going well. And when it isn't going well, I, I, uh, I get really self-critical and have to try and find ways to pull myself out of it because when it's going well, I feel like it's just superwoman. Right. Okay. So let's talk about when it's not going well. Do you feel like that's equally weighted? Like when you're 18 plus years of experience of writing, 
is that ebbs and flows? Do you it kind of like when you're in a down spiral, you kind of know now just to ride it out because you know you're you're going to be going up again? Uh, yeah, I've I've thankfully built some good tools to pull myself out of it um, after that eight year run, especially of not of having a single story. I just kept trying to figure out, but life circumstances kept derailing, changing jobs, uh, moving in and out of any relationship, things like that, having raising kids. So I started over a lot, but I, because I wanted it so badly to the pain to end of the, the pain of not finishing the pain of not getting to where I wanted to be. Um, I ended up researching a lot of ways to try to understand myself as a writer and also create the space for it which was probably the best solution for me was understanding the idea that I probably hit a place of burnout and that I had to recover from that burnout from the prior years. Cause I was just like going, going, going full tilt. Um, that there's only so many beans in your bucket in a day. And if you're not creating the time and reserving the energy for creativity. You can't just manufacture beans. We all get our beans. And sometimes life punches holes in the bucket. So you you lose some of your beans. So it's it was the painful process of probably just understanding myself better so that I could create the space and energy for writing. I love that analogy, the beans in the bucket. It's really about creating containers, isn't it? You have yeah. to create a container for it. So mm-hmm. in a very practical sense, how do you do that? So I learned to identify what my containers are. My children are always my first container. And then because of my children, I have to make sure I maintain our secure, stable life, which means my day job gets my next biggest set of beans because that feeds into all of my my bottom hierarchy of needs, right? You've got your your food, shelter, clothing, and, and then build up from there. And then my third bucket is is me. And writing goes into me, the me bucket, alongside time with friends, alongside exercise and health and taking care of myself. I, I try to treat it as a self-care because it, trying to understand the burnout phase, I recognize just how much it feeds me when it's going well and that if I can nurture it and in, and think of it as self-care. If I fill that hole, then kind of avoid the the pit of sad depression. This is never going to happen. And everything gets infected from it. My day job gets infected. My parenting gets infected if I don't feel good about me. It's so interesting you say that because when people are continuously turning away from what their passion is and they're not doing it for whatever reason, and then they look at other aspects of their life and look around in those aspects and they're like, oh my God, my life is like a mess. I'm not happy in my relationship. I'm not happy in this, I'm not happy in that. And then when they actually, well, in my experience anyway, when I'm coaching people through this, when they actually start facing then the thing that they truly feel called to do and start living a creative life and answering that call, all other aspects magically start to become better energized yeah it's like it's the whole I think we all have our whole of this what's missing that we try and fill within ourselves it's my whole if I fill that hole everything else is easier every crisis is easier 
everything. I think what happened for me is I was seeking external validation and permission to continue writing. Even though I got some financial success, I started building a career, but it hit a wall and just totally dropped off. And I didn't know for a long time I still had permission. I thought somebody else had to sort of create that permission and space for me to do it regardless or to maintain hope that someday that could be financial success. But to be able to say, I can do this regardless because I just love it. And when I was trying to come out of that burnout phase, that was one of the recognitions, trying to avoid that external proof that I get to do this or proof that I should be doing this instead Mm -hmm. of just doing it because I love it. I had to just Mm -hmm. decide this is my right path. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because no one else gives you permission. And it's made me think about another thing that a lot of people confuse, which is they don't see that financial kind of result immediately they think well that's not working I need to turn away from this now and do something that is actually going to bring in money but not continue to do the creative thing alongside it they kind of just push it away completely whereas it's really interesting what you're saying that you did was okay this is something I love doing I'm going to make it part of my life because it's a self-care aspect it's something that I need it's something that feeds me but then I also need to work on my career so that I have money coming in. I mean, is the dream to get to a point where the writing brings in enough or you find Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How cool would that be? Absolutely. But when I made the shift from thinking of it as income and that being a sign of meant to be or permission and got out of that desperation of success and just treated it as self-care, everything becomes easier. And the story came to me finally. And I'm really proud of it. It's probably my best work. And I'm far less hard on myself and far less discouraged when my routine falls off because the AC unit breaks down in my house or there's a crisis at work that takes up more of my being than I wanted to be able to give. And I'm, I'm far less hard on myself so that I get back onto my self-care routine faster. I love that because I think people have this like romanticized vision in their head or this, this false vision is to be a writer is to be a writer and then that's it and that's everything. Oh, yeah. That's the image we see. If you think about what's that movie with Diane Keaton, I think it's Something's Gotta Give and she's typing away at her computer and she's in her beautiful white beach house and the ocean's view and she's like tears pouring down her face and she writes this brilliant play yeah come on no (laughs) I'm sorry (laughs) honey if it's like that for you that's amazing but probably don't tell anybody because it is not reality it's me at a keyboard with two toddlers circling my legs it's me trying to manage what pug is fighting for my lap time while I'm trying to type on my computer between meetings. It's definitely romanticized, I think. Yeah. If we can just take that off the table to begin with, I think if if someone new is coming to this and they're like, okay, I want to write a book, they take that vision off the table immediately. That's a great place to start and just be like, okay, so how is this going to fit in with my life and how am I going to make this work? So tell me then about a typical day for you when you're writing. Do you write every day? The goal is to write every day. Mm -hmm. And 
for me, that means word count every day. But some days that has to also mean research, brainstorming, because sometimes you run out of your runway that you built for your plot. So I have to kind of take a pause and regroup and re-strategize. But every day I'm doing something that nurtures my writing. Ideally, it's in the morning, in the hour or two hours I have before getting my kids to school. But at a minimum, it's every night for an hour to two hours before bed as I'm unwinding with my kitty fighting for attention. And do you feel any resistance at all when you're going to do that block of writing? It depends on if I've run out of runway because I need to do more research to kind of fill the well, or if something in my day life has taken more beans, then I will feel either drained, the the critical thoughts start really piling up when I'm drained. Because just because you have the time for writing doesn't mean you have the energy. It does take some energy. Just like getting in the shower takes some energy, just like doing your laundry takes some energy. It's it's the self-care that makes our life run smoothly, but sometimes you really got to dig deep for it. And my day job or kids things, life events doesn't always allow me to protect that energy, even though I'm really good at the time protection now. Mm, so, okay. So you would still recommend honoring that container and digging mm-hmm. deep rather than listening to your body and saying, oh, I'm really drained today. I'm not going to do it. I know I'll feel better if I do something. You know how a shower always makes you feel better? No. I've learned it always, always makes me feel better if I do at least something that I can say, I fed my writer side today. I can shop for playlists, songs, because I like to make playlists for my books on Spotify. I can give myself a really low word count minimum that always makes me feel like a rock star when I exceed it. So the word count thing, you've mentioned that quite a few times. That's kind of, that's super important, is it? I think it because I started at using NaNoWriMo, that National Novel Writing Month, that's that's the kind of jargon that people refer to it as. I used that as my first experience as an author of success because your goal is type 50,000 words within 30 days. And so that was my marker that I learned to weight myself against of, did I hit my thousand words? Did I hit my 500 words? What have you? And ever since I had that, I've always broken down my plan for my timeline on when I think I can accomplish finishing a book based on word count and how many words a day and things like that. Is there any resources for people that they can go to to kind of help them do that? Say, so you have an idea for a book and you've never done it before. What's the plan of attack when you go in first, when you have this initial idea? Is there like an outline you can follow? First, I would say every writer has some approach they've learned works for them. We're all very different. And to some extent, it's experimenting with what others are using so you can figure out what resonates with you. There's plotters and there's pantsers. A author who writes from the seat of their pants really likes surprise and just trusts their internal storytelling compass to arrive at their destination and might not write every day or need to to maintain momentum. An outliner or a plotter would be a person who outlines their entire novel start to finish and is okay with some surprises along the way, but pretty much knows where they're headed the whole time. And it's pretty fleshed out. 
and they're going to be probably a more structured personality in in their day life too. They're a habit person. They have good routines versus a more spontaneous personality. They don't. They balk at that. And then there's kind of in between. I'm in between. I'm a, a plotzer where I need enough runway, like as far as my headlights will take me driving at night. Um, if I plot ahead enough that I know where I'm heading, I can get there the whole way. I just have to see in the headlights of what's coming next. And so the books I love, I love The Hero's Journey. It helps me kind of have some tent poles or some major points I'm, I'm heading toward. I really like Save the Cat as the whole series because it gives you a screenwriting structure, but you can translate that into novel writing. And there's so many examples they use to help you understand genre and characterization and why all movies are kind of the same. So you can kind of get out of the sense of needing to be the perfect genius of something nobody's ever done kind of idea. There's a lot of tools out there to capture outlines, uh, to capture characterization and things like that. I really like Scrivener. It combines the idea of plot cards or sticky note kind of concept where you're able to jot down ideas at a high level, which would be more like outlining, but also you can write in their novel template and start including chapters. You can ultimately format it at the end for print or ebook and things like that. This is great. This is super helpful. So I feel like a lot of people don't really get started because as well, they get really overwhelmed of that. It's overwhelming. Yeah. There's a book by Anne Lamott called Bird by Bird. And it's the idea that you just have to take it step by step. Some people really need to see the whole in order to sort of reverse engineer it to the, the basic first step. You just have to figure out what your bites are or what your bird is for you. And sometimes that means exploring what works for others, as long as it doesn't get you into analysis paralysis, where there is no right answer that's universal. It's a matter of getting to know who you are and getting aware of how you think about it, like yourself talk about it and how comfortable you are with finding that approach, I think. Yeah. It's all part of the journey, isn't it? Yeah. Which, oh my gosh, if you told me that in my 20s, I would have really wanted to punch you. I'm not violent though. I remember I saw a talk. Um, I can't remember her name. She wrote a really fun nerd series of romance novels. Like The Nerd Who Loved Me, I think was one of the titles. Vicki Lewis Thompson, she gave a talk, How to Become an Overnight Success in 25 Years or Less. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I cannot. I cannot. It's not what you want to hear. I did not wait. I cannot wait 25 years. <laughs> I'm at 18 years and that's fine. It, it, it's fine. I'm glad I didn't know that then though, because I probably would have had a, a, a really ugly breakup with writing that I'd always regret. Right. This is why if you're listening now, start now. You have to start, start. now. Yeah. Just start. Just start. It's, there's like, there's nothing to lose. And as well, there's endpoint. So you have, so like for you, you so you have seven books, right? But it's not like you get to the end of your book and then you're like, ah, complete, done. I feel no. It's a the love of writing, right? So it's just it's like always there. Yes, no, it's it's addictive. You're always looking for the next 
beautiful moment where the story takes over and surprises you and makes it feel like it's bigger than you. Something's happening that's bigger than me. Those are my my favorite moments and they're addictive and it will never go away. You will get way too many ideas. They sit in your mental waiting room for their little standing with their number in their hand and you're like, okay, okay, I'm sorry. I'll get to, I swear. Talk to me about the spirit of that because um, Elizabeth Gilbert talks about that in her book, Big Magic. Have you read it? I love Big Magic. I love the idea that our inspiration are these little energy entities that choose us and sometimes choose more than one person because they're fickle mm-hmm. little creatures. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I've I've had a few ideas just sitting in my mental waiting room, a few next books. It's just not their turn yet because mm-hmm. it's not the one that's demanding all of my attention that I'm daydreaming about all the time. Mm-hmm. But they're there and hopefully I'll get to all of them. This is a part of me that really excites me. Like the, this is the juicy part of creativity where I'm just like, oh, talking about, you know, energy and like the, the mystery of like the muse and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And for me, even in podcasting and coaching, like coaching has called me for many, many years and like wanted me to step forward and hold space for people and help people. And I was turning away from that for such a long time. And I started to get signs and and all this kind of mystical stuff happening around me. And then when I started taking little small steps and little actions, there'd be confirmation. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a lovely feeling because it just is that feeling that, oh, okay, there's something bigger at play. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yes. I get synchronicities in my books where there's things that I lay down as I'm writing that I think, oh, I don't know what that means. I'll come back to it. I can edit it later, right? That way further down the the track, it reveals itself to me. And I'm like, oh, I can't believe I did that. That's definitely not me. It's something subconscious at play. Like, for example, uh, my last, my most recent book is called The Truth About Magic. And that was just a working title to sort of get me a prompt to start writing, which is, uh, it's one of my tricks. Give yourself a phrase like once upon a time. And mine was the truth about magic is people don't really realize how difficult it is or how challenging. It's not like Harry Potter. And I didn't recognize up front the, all the elements of truth that were being embedded into the plot um, until towards the end where it just started all coming together, these there's these stones that I used as the magical object or the MacGuffin that was driving a lot of the plot. And the stones are seer stones. They tell you their truth and justice. And at first I thought, oh, those won't be a big deal. And it turned out to be like integral to the whole plot, not to give it much away, but by the end scene, you, you start seeing, oh, this this whole story is about the truth not the reality about magic, but like this truth of this whole plot and conspiracy. And I've laid all this groundwork and it's, oh my gosh, it was really cool. It's so cool. It's like just by showing up and writing you and cut this story is like being uncovered to you. Is it? Yeah, it was. There was another point where as I was writing, a character showed up at a place. I didn't think, I thought it was going to be a whole different character. It was almost like I'm in the movie I'm the I'm the heroine and I look and there's that guy instead of the guy I thought would be there. And I literally, like I was watching a movie, stopped and looked over. And if somebody had been, <laughs> I would have been like, oh my gosh. 
it was it was amazing and cool and it just it blew my mind and those are the those are my my absolute favorite moments but they're also the moments that validate they're the synchronicities that validate this is what i meant to do and it's not mm-hmm. it's not necessarily because of any financial success that would be great i i just makes me who i am and i'm a better everything when i'm doing it Mm-hmm. And you don't get to feel those feelings of validation and feel this synchronicity until you actually take action and start yes. working and doing it. Yeah. And it would be lovely if it was every time. That would be amazing. But <laughs> you just, you got to show up for it first. Yeah. And it's just not life. I don't know why we put this pressure on creative things that it has to be like so linear and we have to see the validation and we have to know the whole path before we begin. Because Life just doesn't work like that. In any other area of our lives, we don't get that. So why would we expect that from our creative pursuits, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. We have to allow, it's a combination, is it, of creating these containers, doing all the very important logistical stuff so that we can make it work in our very important logistical lives. (laughs) And then once we're in there, once we've created those containers and done all the important logistical stuff, we open up and we allow space for this magical, energetic, creative stuff to come through us. And it happens more often if you show up more often, mm-hmm. which which is great. But there is something that I've learned that there is something satisfying about the struggle even after the fact. If you get through it, sort of like going to school. Once you get that degree, it's so satisfying to know you stuck through it and you finished and you can look back and feel good about how tough it was when it's not as tough anymore. Mm-hmm. And and so if I treat it with that mentality when I'm having a difficult week, but I come out of it, I can feel really satisfied and proud of myself. Um, and it's it's equally juicy and it's equally rewarding having that feeling as having the magical moments Mm -hmm. so coupled together if I can try to combine that like sense of satisfaction of showing up for myself and continuing because I value myself and I value my dreams and then I get the little rewards little validation that say yeah you're doing it yeah keeps you going yeah and then if somebody reads it and Mm. has that same experience it's like when you can make someone laugh from a joke, like when you both go to a movie and you both loved it and you have this shared experience and that that is its own magic too that I love. Yeah. You know, not essentially doing it for primarily for the validation, but if your goal is to grow and just to become a better person through actually like answering the call to your own desire to create something and then you let go of the, it's that whole thing, isn't it? Letting go of the outcome. When you do get a little bit of validation, of course, it's wonderful. It's nice, but it shouldn't be the reason for for doing it. The focus should be on the process, shouldn't it? Yeah. I thought that making money at it would make it somehow easier. It's the same struggle. It's the same waffling between insecurity and drive. And mm-hmm. I'm just better at it now, better at the waffling. But when I was making full-time income versus not full-time, that never changed. I always thought that that would be the thing that made it easier, and it just doesn't. The creative process just is the creative process, regardless of financial success. And I think for some, it could even hinder it. 
if you get financial success, if we think about one hit wonders, you know, somebody who just takes off and then you just never hear of again, or self-sabotagers who have huge commercial success, but then self-sabotage their own downfall. If we put stock in our the value it brings us emotionally uh, and spiritually, I think that you come at it from a different place, not from desperation, but just from from love. Mm, that's beautiful. It must be such a hard thing to have such um, a big success and then the feeling of then, and then continuing to write after that. It when, was hard. Yeah. Because I was like, oh, I'm right there. I had two novels in the top 100 on Kindle, top 100 list. I was like sitting right next to Dean Kuntz and I was, oh, it was so, it was such a good feeling. But and, and for a while, it was really humiliating. I had uh, some some embarrassment to kind of move beyond that. Th- there are always some in our world that do not want us to succeed, that are just dying to watch our downfall, dying to watch us fail. Um, and I that was part of the burnout I had to really work through is that that doesn't that really doesn't define your success. It doesn't have to define your success, whether you're on the rise or on the fall, and what people think. Can you expand on that a little bit more, like what happened in that in that time? So when I was preparing to end my marriage, because I was a stay-at-home mom, one of the really core drivers was I could maybe make money from writing and then it would give me access to be able to end the marriage and be okay financially because I was completely dependent on him. And it did, but then my divorce got really, really ugly. And I found out that adults in my life had opinions about my divorce and took sides and took actions to, I guess, celebrate my failure, I I would say is probably the, the kindest way to characterize it, that I had people who um, started a smear campaign and did really awful things like read through 12 years of journals and tried to arm my ex with ugly information and would say really mean things about my writing. And so that coupled with the fact that I could, I couldn't write anymore. I couldn't maintain that momentum because I wasn't able to write because I was under so much stress. And, and I had gotten to a position of a little bit of esteem within, within a peer group. And I was giving talks, I was giving workshops, I was helping others succeed. And then I, by commercial means, by commercial measurements, I I failed. I stopped. I choked. Mm-hmm. What have you? When really, I I just was facing uh, realities I didn't know were possible, and I had to I had to make a different plan so that I could take care of my kids. And then over the years, that ended up teaching me a lot about myself as a writer and what uh, what success means, and giving myself permission to continue something regardless. And it will be great if it if it happens, but. It's just as satisfying hitting the top 100 as having somebody say, oh my gosh, I loved that book and just mm-hmm. geek out with me over the plot is, is also really, really wonderful. So mm-hmm. it's really important, isn't it, to remain like in, a, in Buddhist teaching, they call it equanimous, which is like, you know, it's very easy when you're in the public space and you're sharing your work to get carried away with either the criticism that can push you under 
or the accolade, which can temporarily, it feels amazing, you know, kind of push you right up there. And I think that the idea isn't it to learn how to kind of manage that energy, mm-hmm. not be so enamored by praise and then also not to be so affected by someone that's going to speaking shit. Yes. The pendulum. It's a painful swing if you go from those two ends instead of just trying to settle into the middle of either way. Haters, lovers of my work, this is for me and I get to protect it and do my best at it. And that is what is satisfying anyhow and not being a hungry ghost and just being desperate Mm -hmm. for, for that external validation, that external reward, that proof that you're doing a good job instead of just sensing it and feeling it within myself. And that took a long time to get to. Mm-hmm. Well, great. I mean, I bet I can imagine it was like, it sounds pretty gnarly what you went through. <laughs> it was. It was. Oh my gosh. Someday. Wouldn't it be fabulous to be like the tell-all? The tell-all. Maybe it's a book. Yeah, I know your fiction mm-hmm. writes. Maybe there's a nonfiction book there in the... In the- oh, it gets in the fiction. I, had, I oh, definitely right. have some material for the fiction oh, right. side of things. Yeah. Yeah, all the bad players get their get their place in my worlds, my little fictional worlds. And then people will tell me that's not believable. I'd be like, Excellent. oh honey. Yeah. yeah. And this way as a writer as well, it's important to have a, a very um you have to be in life, not cut yourself off from life and sit in a hole writing. It's like you've got like like you said, like the material is all there in front of us, right? You know, every yeah. day. Yeah, it's very interesting to me reflect back on that idea I had in my early 20s that I didn't have enough life experience yet. And that's, it was true. I I didn't have enough maturity and understanding of life that I definitely compared to what I have now and what I can draw from and my understanding that definitely helps inform better writing, better characters. Right. You, you can see that and you're writing like the... Yeah. yeah. I would say it's never too late to start writing because mm-hmm. of that because it does give you such richness. This has been so great. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. I enjoyed yeah. it as well. All right. I appreciate the, the chance to speak with you. Oh, thank you. Bye. Bye. As we come to the end of another episode, I want to remind you that the only way to make your dream a reality is through consistent action. You have to keep showing up. And this is no easy task which is why I'm here three times a week inspiring you to align with your purpose, act with intention, and start making shit happen. If you found value in today's episode, please subscribe and spread the love. Share it with your friends and family. I'd really appreciate it. And if you have an idea you'd like me to discuss, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you're interested in my coaching, I'm currently offering one-on-one online sessions you can drop me an email at lisahorgan at pm.me to book a free introductory session. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time.